0: Ironically, I feel like God has put me in a position to be a voice in those things because of the tough times that I had to get to be in that position. So honor your skills, develop your skills, stay committed to those those things and stay vigilant.
1: I'm Leila Saad and my life is driven by one burning question. How can I become a good ancestor? How can I create a legacy of healing and liberation for those who are here in this lifetime and those who will come after I'm gone? In my pursuit to answer this question, I'm interviewing changemakers and culture shapers who are also exploring that question for themselves in the way that they live and lead their life. It's my intention that these conversations will help you find your own answers to that question too. Welcome to Good Ancestor Podcast. Welcome, Good Ancestors, and welcome to today's episode, a fellow third culture kid who is using his difference to make a difference. Tayo Roxon is a writer, speaker, consultant, podcaster, professor, and brand strategist who runs UYD Management, a strategic consulting firm that helps organizations incorporate sustainable diversity and inclusion practices. Tayo is the author of the brilliant book, Use Your Difference to Make a Difference, how to connect and communicate in a cross-cultural world. As the son of a diplomat, Tayo grew up understanding the nuances of multicultural diversity while living on four continents. Tayo and I talk about the importance of education, not perpetuating systemic oppression, and learning to communicate more effectively to help build a better world. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Good Ancestor Podcast. I'm your host, Leila Saad, and my guest today is Tayo Roxon, the author of Use Your Difference to Make a Difference, How to Connect and Communicate in a Cross-Cultural World. Welcome to the show, Tayo.
0: Thank you for having me, Leila. It's a real pleasure to be on. I'm glad we're doing this.
1: I'm glad we're doing this. We spoke just a few months ago earlier this year. I was very privileged to be on your podcast as told by nomads, which I really want people to check out as well, because I know it was a really rich conversation. And so it's really great to get you on our podcast now and switch the tables and dig into your work and your story and everything that you're about. So before we get started, our very first question, who are some of the ancestors, living or transitioned, familial or societal, who've influenced you on your journey? Uh,
0: first and foremost is the late Nelson Mandela. That's been a driving force for me since I was a preteen. Living under two dictatorships when we were when I used to live in Nigeria before we transitioned to civilian rule. But yeah, the late Nelson Mandela. Uh, we've got James Baldwin, uh, <laughs> Audre Lorde. <laughs> There's so many, but those are the ones. And then living, I'm a big fan of uh, of Oprah, and I love. You know, I don't know if you've heard, does uh, Leila Sad? Uh, <laughs> I don't know. Maybe, you know, I don't know. You might, I I had to look away because I wasn't sure. You have an uncanny I resemblance, <laughs> uncanny <laughs> resemblance to, to what I was talking about. But yeah, those would be the... uh
1: thank you. I, I feel very humbled to be included in that list. And
0: Angela Davis too. Yeah.
1: Yes, yeah. yes, yes. I um, have obviously been been reading your book, and so I knew some of the ones that were in there. Nelson Mandela is heavily referenced in here. Oprah, I know from your Of Kings and Queens series that Audrey Lorde and James Baldwin are huge influences of yours as well, which is, you know, you do yeah. these incredible series on YouTube and on social media where you share about various topics, and one of them, the Of Kings and Queens, looking at people from Africa or the African diaspora who have had huge influences you know what inspired you to start that series
0: well it's part of a bigger project I'm working on and the reason is I don't think many people have truly investigated history through the appropriate lens And, and a lot of times when history is told about black folks or people of African descent it's told from the lens of colonization imperialism or you know enslavement and I Witnessed this firsthand when I first moved to the United States at the age of 17 college. Mm-hmm. You know, all these weird ideas of people being surprised by my English or my complexion or any of these things. And I feel like it comes down to people not being aware of their ancestry and not aware of just how rich in royalty a lot of black culture is embedded in. And my hope is to help humanize those elements of history that have been erased or forgotten. But also to give our young kings and queens something to look back on and say, I can see myself in that, or I'm continuing the legacy of such and such. And I, I think those things are important and they play a role into why the world is as <laughs> divided as it is today. Uh, yeah. But yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah. You talk about history actually in your book, and there was something that I wrote down. I want to find it. So you were yeah, talking about. Have- yeah. Yes, yes, the poem. So I actually I wrote down like I want Tayo to read this poem.
0: It's a poem. Right.
1: you have it with you.
0: I have the book. I, I so I if you read the book of what latest references as I try to make things genre bending, and I'm a poet. That's how I started. I started writing since I was 15. So in the book, I included <laughs> a lot of my poems, but I have to find it here. At-
1: I can tell you, it's on page 113. Ah. Uh huh and it's a poem called History Doesn't Have to Be a Mystery.
0: All right, this is my this, I feel like I'm on my book tour. <laughs> <laughs> All right, okay, so the poem is called History Doesn't Have to Be a Mystery. Here it goes. History doesn't have to be a mystery, and yet it is for so many. I watch as lost stories of identity are trapped in misery. Efforts to improve representation are silenced by fragility because to do this, means taking accountability. And since no one wants to face culpability, we teach a watered down version of history that doesn't offend the majority. Marginalized groups are made to think their origins are from oppression and that they did so little in terms of contribution. So the cycle goes on and on promoting more ignorance and dehumanization. Why should I respect you or be curious about where you where you came from when all I've seen of your history is in chains and shackles. The exports that have made their way to my TV show you uncivilized and in pregnant bellies. No, I do not need you to respect me because my systems have told me otherwise. What systems though? Systems that promote the exaggerated perspective of the West so it's easy for you to think of other coasts in jest. systems that have hidden the crowns of my ancestors systems that have justified theft systems that have chosen comfort over courage do better. History isn't a mystery. It's a mirror, a reflection of the past that connects us to today. It's a chance to correct mistakes of propaganda and genocide by filling in the blanks of the parts of the world that we have brushed aside. Just because some of us fear what history might tell us about our current traditions and heritage doesn't mean that we shouldn't tell complete stories of the past. History doesn't have to be a mystery. So why make it so? Doing so is literally dividing our world. Mm. Yeah.
1: Mm, Thank you. (laughs) I knew you'd recite it a lot better than I would. And I'm curious, you know, where did that poem come from for you? And I'll tell you just very briefly, you know, when I was reading that part of your book and you were talking about education and the world of education and the importance of when telling the stories of, you know, black and brown people, like not just telling it from the start of colonialism onwards, but really digging deep into pre-colonial history. And I thought it was so important. You wrote something down. You said, Pre-colonial history should include the study of Africa before transatlantic enslavement, the pre-colonial history of Asia, the history of Indigenous Caribbeans, the history of Native Americans, the history of Australian Aboriginal history, the history of Native New Zealanders, and the history of Indigenous South Americans. This promotes identity because it shines a light on the historical, scientific, cultural and intellectual contributions of multiple cultures all over the world.
0: Yeah, and I believe that because when we look at the the problems of today, the fabric of a lot of the conflicts that we're having today, you know, you hear people say, I don't want, you know, let's let's think about the the alt-right or white supremacists. I don't want you to rob me of my history. You're coming into my country and taking away our pride. And I'm often thinking, wait, this land is stolen. The part of the the history that you're talking about had influences from other traditions that you don't even recognize. And if you're going to promote something, you have to tell the full story. And, you know, it becomes a whole ideology and political parties are based in this. And it's seen as if there's a a caste system to highlight the amazing new book by Wilkinson. But Uh that caste system really influences the systems. We start to participate in but also the education institutions that we we promote because there's so much money given into these textbooks that barely get updated all right yeah and and instead of compensating the teachers and i you know i'm a professor instead of compensating teachers we don't compensate them it's just hey let's get the second edition of this maybe we'll change one word or we'll change the cover
1: (laughs) right right and and
0: we have to change the contents of that
1: it reminds me of Peggy McIntosh's Unpacking the Invisible Knapsack essay, right? So with the list of 50 ways that you know that you have white privilege. And one of them is when I'm taught about civilization and who made it the way that humanity is, I'm taught that it's people who look like me who made the world the way that it is. Yeah. Right. And so this idea of, you know, sort of linking this back to the series that one of the series that you've been doing on of kings and queens, that we have a rich history and that our history is not separate to the main story of humanity. It's actually the beginning of it. It's the middle, right? It's the present. Yeah. And it's not minor. It's not marginal. It is the story.
0: Yeah, labor or capital, right, is what a lot of people needed in terms of financing the world the way it is, whether it was the British Empire coming and the African continent, British, Italy, Italian, Portuguese, all of them, mm-hmm. labor, capital, right, imperialism. United States, a lot of the enslaved folks built <laughs> the country, yeah. you know, the infrastructures that are here today, if you're looking at the 1619 Project, it highlights, details, just how influential and important that was needed, right? And, and all these things, we don't think about that when we're talking about history, we just think about, yes, this person invented this, this person invented that. And you're not understanding that in order for that to have happened, there are certain things that needed to be there. And I think that that does a great disservice to the traditions we claim to have and the cultures we, tra- we claim to have because they're incomplete.
1: Right, I'm thinking about, you know, so right now is uh, we're recording in October, And it's uh, British Black History Month, right? And then in the US, it's February for um, Black History Month. And this idea that Black history is this other thing that is confined to a month, right? As opposed to something that's shaping, it's always there, it's always present. Uh What do you see as the, I mean, I think for myself as a Black person, so many of the Black people I know, we don't just, you know, focus on Blackness in that month, but for many non-black people and very many white people, that's the one month in which they'll think about the history of black people. What do you think from the perspective of, and I'm really thinking about like the context of your work, this idea of connection and this, right? The connection of they're not other, they're us. Yes.
0: Well, I mean, connection to me is a personal and professional exploit, and for the audience. I'm Nigerian, but I grew up in five countries and four continents. So for me, that craving for connection was something that I wanted to have because I had a huge identity crisis initially. But then I ended up growing up as being black on four different continents. And I got to see how people were defining who I was before that. And as I was observing the world, you know, reading the books of late Nelson Mandela and looking at that, I saw that people just didn't understand how to, to connect. In fact, they were looking at it through a, a fear based lens or you take this, I don't have this lens, instead of a week and all participating, creating this narrative. And I felt like I needed to break down connection in the, in the work. And I feel that like a connection to self is the mm-hmm. first thing. Connection to others is also an important skill to build. And then a connection to history and, and the world. And that's what I was, I, I was trying to do because I don't think many people apply all those elements of connection. I think some people miss out of that connection of self and we become way more conditioned actually as opposed to intentional. If you ask a bunch of people why they believe what they believe or where the origins of the thoughts come from, they wouldn't be able to articulate that to you. And that is a problem because some of these people end up shaping the policies that we have. You know, you go up into these positions basing your privilege and your power dynamics, you end up hiring, firing, promoting, creating policies about people that you have somehow conditioned beliefs about, but you haven't investigated the source of that. And so you take on things that were influenced by, times that we're not in today and Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. problem so if you're not connected to that (laughs) it creates disconnect which is the irony of the whole thing so that's why connection is important man that's the role i feel like connection plays into all this
1: yeah it's something that's very similar like aligned in our work is we both focus on it has to be the inner and the outer and that there cannot be outer action without that inner understanding in your book, you walk us through a process of like things that are important for looking at yourself Mm -hmm. before looking at, okay, what needs to change in the workplace? What needs to change in education? What needs to change in, you know, other institutions? It's more like, what are your values? What are your unconscious biases? What are your emotional triggers? Yeah. What was your journey for that? Because I'm always really interested in how someone else's external teachings that they're sharing yeah. with the work has come about because of their personal journey.
0: That's a great question. I, so I, I've always been a, a philosopher amongst my my groups of friends or a curious one. And, you know, we both come from African backgrounds. It wasn't always encouraged you know i was supposed to be a lawyer engineer doctor
1: oh yeah <laughs> <laughs> the only three jobs are allowed to have right <laughs> yeah or <a> failure
0: right <laughs> failure exactly of option four <laughs> <laughs> so I, I was always this kid i'm the oldest of, of three boys and when we were in that dictatorship i was just always questioning them. okay why 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 my parents be, shut chop shut, shut up shut up we don't want to get killed and then when we started getting posted, I was that skinny Nigerian kid in the, with a thick Nigerian accent in a French-speaking country and in America, mm-hmm. and that's just puberty. And in a place where everybody felt different, I felt different. And that was the beginning. Also, So I started to, I felt very inferior, if I'm being honest. I, I had moments where I, you know, people made fun of my hair, so I wanted to straighten my hair. I wanted to look like this side of my skin. I was looking, I was like, should I bleach my, I was thinking of anything. Any. this is a 10-year-old. and. Right. As I was reading up on the history of Nelson Mandela and all that, and I was thinking, you know, Mandela spent all these years in jail, you know, 27 years in jail, and there was a lot of reflection that came from that. The heroes that I even had, you know, whether it's the fictional, you know, whether it's Superman or T'Challa, and rest in peace, Jada Grossman, all of these folks, they had to come to some level of who am I? Yeah. <laughs> you know, who am I really before this? I know everybody puts all these things onto on, on me, but who am I? And it really comes down to identity because the world we have today strips identity, many people of their identity right? mm-hmm. in favor of assimilation for all those things. And as I found myself in the process of trying to assimilate, because I thought that would be what I needed to do, I found myself getting more comfortable. So I looked at Oprah's story as she transitioned from the talk show format to more spirituality. And I said, all these people I admire were brave enough to be themselves. Mm. that was the first thing that I noticed I don't know why I was thinking that this is a kid but this is just in my head and so I started to print out papers and my my, my, my mom and dad always make fun of me but we had that da- dial up internet then and so I would print out papers of everyone I admired in sports or in politics or anything and i would just read up on every interview that I had and I had folders put under my bed I would hide them from my dad because I didn't want them to know that I was printing wasting all this paper and every night I would read through the paper okay so this, this is what lebron does this is what uh, i'll ever seen all of them and i'll just read and i didn't know why i was doing it it only makes sense in reverse now but i was like okay this is the habits this is the daily habits and so every morning i'll start to do that and i start reading more and more and it gave me this sense of understanding how everybody has a different lens and so in the book i talk about in the self-awareness part I, i call it the btv and it's like you, I learned this acronym after I put the book out. <laughs> right. <laughs> I put I was like, I could just have called it BTV. So bias triggers values. So I was like, you need to know your biases because everybody has biases. That's just how we protect ourselves and see the world. But yeah. what are your biases and what are the the ways that you see certain people? And I, I started to understand that as I was in different countries. And I'll be like, oh, I thought that was, oh, that's not the case. And then I was correcting myself. I was. I was learning. Right. Then triggers. I get triggered by bullying because I've been, you know, I've been bullied emotionally, but never, you know, quite physically. But it's always because you're the different one, so we'll try and ostracize you and alienate you.
1: Mm.
0: You put me amongst other people who ostracize, and I started to realize, ah, oh, wow, so these are the the triggers. And so every time mm. I would find myself seeing, reacting in a way where I couldn't control my emotions, especially when I was a kid. My parents would tell me, "You better control your emotions. What, what, what? You can't just be angry all the time. You are you are you always angry?" And so, as I was trying to tame my anger, and for Black folks, anger is it's a weird relationship. Almost we're we're not told to be angry anymore. And right. so, as I was trying to suppress a lot of my anger, I was learning about my triggers, the self awareness, and then values. I then realized at a very early age, especially when I came back to Nigeria, and I went to boarding school, and in boarding school, <laughs> you are essentially there by yourself and you're with a group of people and anyone that's gone to boarding school, I ended up being the head boy. People look up to you, right? But people try to break you down as well. And I, I came there as this Americanish guy who hadn't been to American and everybody was so confused because I wasn't conforming to what I thought were toxic elements of tradition. And so then I said, if I need to succeed for these next two years, I need to figure out what my values are. So I came up with my five core values, curiosity, courage, compassion, creativity, and joy. And my name, Akintayo, means a warrior or the brave one as brothers joy. So that was my journey. I was learning through that. I was like, if I know my values, I'm not going to let the world define me. And I'm going to have my own boundaries. And as I have my own boundaries, I will be confident and firm with who I want to be and who I want to show up at. So yeah, observations of myself.
1: And that's incredible. Um. You know, what's really funny is, so we're both third culture kids who are African and we were both, so you were head boy in your school. I was head girl. So we <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> <laughs> you were definitely yeah. the geeks of school. I yeah, know that yeah. for sure. I think we would have been friends in school. <laughs> But something that I did at the beginning of this year was actually, well, right at the end of last year was sit and write myself a personal code of conduct, get really clear on my values, get really clear on what was important to me. And you talk about in the book, you know, what is your personal code of conduct? And I think this is so important for people who are thinking about how can I use my difference to make a difference, right? I need to get clear on who I actually am and not perform A personality that I think is the personality of a quote unquote ally or the personality of somebody who's seen as quote unquote woke, right? There's a lot of that going on right now where people are, there's a lot of urgency to create change. And what happens, what I have observed a lot of times is that people, out of very good intention to want to be part of change, are not wanting to stop and do the inner work. They're wanting to rush to the solution. What have you seen are the dangers of that?
0: Well, there's a saying that the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. And I I see the reason why that is is so apropos now is people have these good intentions of, I want to do good, and it's because they're reactive, though. They They aren't proactive. You know, a lot of times... When you you find yourself being triggered by the murder of George Floyd or what's happened in Nigeria with SARS, that's the only moment for many people that they think about it. And they're like, oh, what can I do? And then they, you know, maybe they've soothed a part of themselves that feels like they've done something. What did they put out a tweet so it elevated their ego, made them seem more woke. But then they go back to the day-to-day. Right. Which is fine. I'm not saying anyone shouldn't go back to the day-to-day. But the problem is they've treated that thin as just an Oh, that happened. Done. Right. Yes. And when you do that, you misuse your privilege. That is the problem. That is the point of that. Mm. Those things in my ideal world would be a wake-up call for folks and say, oh, this has been happening all around me. I'm just hearing about it now. What have I done to insulate myself in such a way that I'm just hearing about it? You know what? I'm going to create an environment where I'm constantly vigilant about this, and I'm going to do all in my power to make sure it doesn't continue to happen. That <laughs> is the reaction that I hope in an ideal world. But when it becomes just react and do this for two minutes or two days or two hours, what happens is that the problem still persists and it then leads to this thing where there's distrust. We work in, in similar fields and you know there, there are many people who just would not trust, I don't know, I'm not trusting any white person, I'm not trusting any of this, I'm not trusting any of that. And, when we can't learn how to figure out uh, how to bridge those divides, it's going to continue to to, to separate. And even in, in any system, men, women, I've seen, I was talking to a group the other day, and, and the man goes, I'm just anti-feminist or anti-women. And I was like, I, I think you're saying anti-woman. I, I don't even know if it's just anti-feminist. It's like, yeah, women should just be here and all these things. And I'm like, what? What? <laughs> And then something wow. would happen. Like, something would happen. Like the media would be like, "Oh, that's horrible." And I'll be saying, "How can you reconcile these two things? You right. haven't reflected on yourself because right. you're acting like you think these are the core core values." And so the danger yeah. is, you're performative, and you're you're part of the problem. But you're also creating this distrust cycle that doesn't encourage connection, which is mm. what we need to figure out how to do to collaborate. Because how are you going to be able to know about a problem if you haven't had the lived experience? But if someone from that lived experience is not going to trust you because you've repeatedly shown yourself to be performative as opposed to be trying to be informative and consistent.
1: Right. One of the things that you talk about is the importance of listening actively, like how important listening is. And I think that as we just having this conversation around performativity in so-called allyship, there's often this question of, Okay, so do I listen then, or do I have to use my voice? Like, when do I listen, and when am I supposed to speak up? And if I'm listening, does that mean I never speak up? Or if I'm speaking up, does that mean I'm not listening? Right? There's like these questions that are constantly asked. How do you go about answering that question?
0: So I go about answering that question by saying everyone has a circle of influence. So whenever. uh, use myself as a professor. I have students, right? I'm, te- I'm teaching them communication, and they take on these lessons, and then they apply that to their lives. I'm going to communicate better to my my spouse, my my brother, my sister, my my family. They're listening for the information, and then they're presenting based on what they have. It mm-hmm. doesn't mean you're powerless when you listen. It's you're collecting and gathering information, which is one of the things I said as a diplomat. Like my dad, my dad's job, his job is listening, and then you're using that information you have to better society. So if if you're quote-unquote ally, your job is, I didn't know about the lived experience of people in the LGBTQIA community or, you know, people in marginalized groups. What am I going to do? I have a family or a cousin that always says, spews out these rhetoric. I have a friend in Hollywood that greenlights movies, but the movies I always do a heteronormative perspective. I'm raising two kids. Maybe check, maybe check the curriculum, right?
1: Yes, exactly. Because I think it's like, When the focus is, oh, I have to do something that's so out there, right? So outside of that sphere of influence, it almost becomes a very reasonable excuse why you're not doing anything because that's so far away from you. But what's going on with your relationships with the people that you are in relationship with every day, right? The people at work, the people at home, people at your book club, right? The people at whatever hobby club you go to, that is your sphere of influence. Yeah. You talk about just sort of circling back because I'm I'm thinking about this sphere of influence and yeah, you ask these three questions. What is it? Who are your three best friends?
0: Three best friends, last three places you've lived in, and last three relationships. And I'm not asking people to, you know, necessarily change. Maybe you reflect and you need to change, but the idea is I feel like the equation for worldview is lived experiences plus exposure. If anyone is acting, you know, one why do we see the world the way we do How do we get here? I always ask people to reflect on their lived experiences and how much they're exposed to. So you, when you're reflecting in your lived experiences, you're thinking about your three best friends, who surrounds you the most. Some people don't have up to three. Anyone that you consider your close best friends. The last three places you lived in, there's a point in your life where you you have no choice. Your guardians or your parents, they put you where, you, it's where they're from. Right. And then people start to move based on, hey, I like where I grew up in or out of rebellion. Or out of love of family, you know, they all all these choices. But consciously, unconsciously, we're making decisions and we're surrounding ourselves in different environments without, you know, actively knowing that. And then when we, we are removed from those situations, maybe we're not as exposed. Or when we're embedded in those situations, we're definitely exposed. And then relationships, you know, I'm not telling you what to have different preferences or anything, but I'm telling people to reflect on who they consider worthy. Or, right. or, or attractive so that they can understand that, okay, so this is something that I have here that I need to reflect on. You know, I, I'm sure many many of us have had those people, I know I've certainly had people say, oh, you know, for a black person, I think you're, <laughs> you're okay with black, you're kind of a good looking- And they black tell person.
1: you this to your face yeah. or, oh, wow.
0: Yeah. I've had so many, I, if I go through the list of microaggressions that I've had, but all those things, a good lens for you to give you a starting point on where your thoughts are. It also allows you to think of two concepts, what you think is right and wrong and also your definition of freedom. And I think people have two definitions of freedom. Some people, freedom is more power without accountability.
1: Mm, Do whatever I want to do whenever I want to do it. And I don't want anyone to tell me I can't do it.
0: Exactly. And then for other people, freedom is the ability to exist as who they truly are without punishment.
1: Yeah.
0: Now, if you have these two levels of freedom, the definitions of freedom, you can imagine a chasm that exists between that, that's two people think seeing freedom as a different way and it causes a lot of division. And so I really want people to understand. Maybe this, a is, a
1: bit. this is really, I feel like light bulbs just went off in my head with that <laughs> two definitions of freedom, because, you know, we're looking at the decades-long civil rights movements for Black people around the globe, right? But especially right now, Black Lives Matter movement in the United States, right? And then the NSARS movement in in Nigeria, right? So it's like that definition, the second definition of freedom is we want to exist. We just want our dignity. We just want a dignity. We want to be able to live the way that we are without being punished for it. Right. And the opposition is often side the other, the other side of that freedom definition. Yeah. How do we bridge that chasm?
0: We have to be honest. That's why it starts at first. Many people who have those power, those responsibility have to be honest with the fact that look, I I am part of the problem and my power comes at the expense of others. And what am I willing to actually unlearn? Mm-hmm. You know, we both come from two of the major religions, right? Islam and and Christianity. And in Nigeria, ironically, those are the two, two <laughs> ones there, 50, basically 50-50. And I I remember as I was growing up with my spirituality, and I was starting to figure out toxic elements of it and things to unlearn. That was the same thing. I had to be honest. I was like, I can't just say, sin, <laughs> go, go, right. go here. You're a horrible right. person. I didn't I don't even know why I said it was a sin in the first place. And so that was a starting point for me for me to figure out to unlearn. I was like, yeah, I am so. Part of this problem here, or in the workplace, for example, why are most of the holidays Judeo-Christian? And I haven't said anything. And not everybody is Christian. We, you know, market Easter and Christmas and all these things. But I don't know how many Buddhists or right Muslims I have around. We don't talk about Ramadan. You know, we don't talk about any of these things. And so that's what needs to happen. There has to be that level of honesty and the saying, "The way I am, does everybody feel that that privilege? Can they feel like they can go safe to work? You know, go safely to work and have that." If that's not what's happened to everyone, then I need to find out how to do that. And that requires cultural humility.
1: Yeah. Cultural humility. I'm thinking about use the words or the terms global leadership, global citizen, which I think as third culture kids, it's something that we just really resonate with because we've lived everywhere. We are used to interacting with different people from different cultures and so we have a global perspective Mm -hmm. but we're also even if you're not a third culture kid we are in a highly globalized world we are in a world where you can no longer there's no country anymore right where it's like this is the only people that are in this country there are no other ethnicities in this country except this we are in a globalized world and yet some people embrace that and want to create those connections, and some people want to keep the distance and try and enforce an old paradigm that just no longer physically exists.
0: It doesn't, yeah. And you know the funny thing about those paradigms? Those things are always influenced by the the times, whether it's the industrial revolution or all these things. And I find it so funny that we as humans evolve, countries evolve, all these things evolve, and we don't want to involve tradition, right? And I said in that poem, we need to investigate our traditions, and many people don't want to investigate the traditions because they're afraid of what is going to reveal about about mm. them. I mean, it wasn't that long ago; things were segregated, right? Segregated bathrooms, and many people will say, "If I was there, I would have done this." But I think, based on whatever was considered okay at the time, it didn't even cross most of the people's minds to think that this was like a bad thing. And if it did cross their mind, they didn't want to do it because they were going to take away something from them. And if right. you don't have that uncomfortable conversation with yourself where you're willing to lose some level of, of status or privilege or whatever for the advancement of humanity, there is not going to be any progress. This idea that is a, it's a rosy, you know, I have a rosy picture, so progress is going to be rosy. Is where the problem persists. We talk about white fragility and white, all these white tears and white, all these things. It's and it's not even. I'm not even going to just use white tears or anything. It happens everywhere. Right. It's if you're not comfortable with (laughs) with the idea that there will be struggle and pressure and resistance, then you're going to stay in that performative spectrum of change.
1: So what's really interesting about this is you are naturally, if someone asked me to describe Tai, I'd be like, he's probably one of the most positive, upbeat people that I know, yeah. you know, he just comes across as very authentic and also seems to really, just really treasure joy, right? <laughs> he just seems yes. really happy as a person. And yet you're doing work which requires this radical truth-telling and you are doing work that requires looking at violence and oppression and all of those things. How do we keep our joy in that? And I'm really thinking about, Tayo, like one of the questions that I had for you was, as a black man in the United States in this year, right? I know all of the years have been tough, but in this year especially, how are you maintaining your sense of joy? How are you protecting it?
0: Yeah, you're gonna get me emotional. Okay, Mm. so this has been, for me, I feel it's been great professionally, but it's been tough emotionally.
1: Yeah.
0: For me, every time I feel like I have some moment of breath, there's Jacob Blake, Maud Arbery, Rihanna Taylor, and yeah. then Patrick Brett Sars, so all the, and then I'm just, it's always been a bunch of this, these things. And the interesting thing for me is I'm already the oldest within my family and, then in, in, you know, Nigerian. Same. then <laughs> In a lot of African cultures, the oldest is sort of like you have the secondary parental role.
1: Right. So
0: therapy has been essential for me. And in therapy, I've learned how to change my relationship with anger. I describe myself as an angry optimist. I heard that from Aslan Minaj, and, um, and I feel like it's the most appropriate thing for me. I smile a lot. I'm, I'm happy. <laughs> Joy is one of my values. But I've learned how not to suppress my anger and be be okay with my anger. That's the number one thing, because for a lot of black men and women and non-binary individuals, you're told that the angry you are, the more threatening you seem. And I would even reckon, beckon to say that a lot of my initial instinct to be joyful at first was because I wanted to make the other person feel comfortable in all these different cultures. And so I just let go of that idea. And I was Mm. like, I'm going to be angry and I have no reason to suppress it. (laughs) And then I find moments every week to decompress with therapy. Therapy is very essential for me. I go to therapy every week and I don't forget the mental and physical elements of taking care of yourself. So I'll go on a walk. I'll, you know, work out or do something. And those things to me center me. And then the other thing is I connect to the, you know, I love that you call it, you know, you always talk about your ancestors, but I, I always connect to, my purpose and, and understanding how I'm I'm continuing the legacy of those things. For me, purpose fuels me. You know, every time I feel drained, I'm connected to the purpose because I remember why. And I just know that if I'm not saying something, recognizing the platform I have, someone else might not be able to to get to somewhere. And so that drives me. So wow. those are the things that I do. Yeah.
1: Thank you for sharing that because I think so many of us are struggling this year, especially if you're in the United States and then the added layer now of what's going on in Nigeria for you and your family. Yeah. And it's been a year where I know for myself, I've had to communicate a lot with my team about, you know, I'm actually not that okay.
0: <laughs> yes.
1: I have to step back quite a lot. You know, I've been on sort of a sabbatical on social media and sort of stepping back because it takes a lot to keep showing up when, like you said, you never get a chance to catch your breath because there's always the next thing. And one of the functions of white supremacy and systems of oppression is to keep us constantly on this hamster wheel, right? Of fear and trauma and shock and pain and making the choice to simultaneously say, I'm gonna honor my anger And everything, my grief, everything that I feel, Mm -hmm. and I'm going to protect my joy and my mental and emotional well-being like it's my job. I'm going to do both of those things.
0: Yeah. That's been the thing for me. I think I was was always, sometimes I'll be worried about shame. I'll have some shame about, hey, can I be happy now? (laughs) Or then other times I'll be like, I can't be happy. And it's just internal dialogue. But I want to bring this up because uh, I've always had great respect for you. I even had greater respect for you when I was I was doing this anti-racism campaign 30 days. And I was like, I'm was like, i going to model Layla's, me a white supremacist. And I think I had sent you a message on it, but you weren't sabbatical. So it, I was like, <laughs> I was like, I'm just going to go through how she did it. And I it put out this call. It was after the death of George Floyd. And I was throughout the month of June, I'm going to show up every day with a lesson. And I was using all my platforms, none of them. And I think when I was on day three, I felt like I couldn't get out of bed. And I was like, how did, uh, <laughs> how did she do this? And then I was having to find some source of energy. I yeah. ended up doing it, but it was draining. Yeah, I, yeah. to-
1: I paid for it for months afterwards. I'll tell you that. And it's, it's why I always say I'll never run that. You know, me and white supremacy is a, a free challenge ever again, because there is a huge cost to pay that in the moment from our purpose and our passion, right? That we want to do something, we want to be part of change, we want to educate people and bring people along, we don't realize the personal sacrifice we have to make as part of that work. Yeah. Yes. So I I hear you. I mean, I don't know how I did it to be honest with you. All I know is that God was there. That's what I know. God was
0: there. That's God right. God was there. Is what I know because
1: it wasn't me. That's all I know.
0: <laughs> I think it something external. So yeah, I called it hashtag Let's Talk Bias, and, I, and I, it was the amount of questions and things that were coming, and I was like, "He said this, is what you said you're going to do, Ty." Really? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but all that I hope the audience is understanding because sometimes people get. You know, and they're like, what's the compensation or what do we need? You're just talking. It's research. It's work. It's emotional labor.
1: Actually, there's no amount of compensation that can ever pay for the toll that that kind of work takes on you. There is actually no financial compensation, like the life force energy that you lose from that. There is no financial compensation for it. The reason we do the work that we do is because there's something higher, right, than us that's calling us to it. Yeah. I mean, it's so fascinating hearing your story about how you used to research all these different people and sort of study them. But when did the moment for you come when you were like, this is the work that I want to do in the world?
0: It was a gradual process. So August 22, 2012, I was living in Virginia at the time. And I had sort of given up on this because I had applied to over 85 jobs. And because I'm not a citizen, they were telling me we don't sponsor Mm. visas, we don't do all these things. So I wound up, Convincing one of my previous internship opportunities to say, Hey, can you just get? I need, like, it's the only way I can stay in the country. And then even they said yes, but they had me pay my, you know, they're like, Well, oh, wow. Yeah. It was like, Hey, well, you're going to have to find a way to get us this lawyer fee. And so I was like, Okay, I guess I'll pay for it. And it was, so it was that I was at that place and to August 22, 2012. I was about a year into this job. I said, I tried. And I was in this small town that didn't feed any of my, I have a boisterous personality. <laughs> and I was driving to work in my burgundy Toyota Camry at the time. And I, I got to the part where the road merged into the highway. And I was cruising down my lane 60 miles an hour. And all of a sudden, my lane gets cut to half. You know, it's neighboring cars, lost control. So I'm, sm- I'm swerving out of the way so I don't get hit. Boom, one car, boom, two cars, boom, three, Whoa. and then bam, I hit the left guardrail again. The Car lifts up. It's, it's about to flip over this bridge. I'm 22 years old, and the only thought that came to my mind at the time, as cliche as it sounds, was, "Have I done everything I said I was going to do?" Yeah, here I was. Wow. I was about to essentially die. I mean, and then um, I hadn't, and I was thinking of all the the Nelson Mandela stories and all these things in the Oprah. and I was just in this town in <laughs> a job I hated. And adrenaline kicked in. I slammed my brakes. I somehow managed to get out of the car. My car was completely crushed, totaled, and there were two other cars hit. But I was in the middle of the highway, and zoom, 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 zoom—nothing had happened to me. And I was like, "Okay, God, (laughs) this is it." So I started to shift my mindset. So before that, my fear was not failing. That's part of what I was conditioned as—you know, the way I grew up: don't fail, you can't get this grade, you can't get that. Don't look at this. What will your family think? What will extended family? So my fear became shifted from not failing to. Not achieving my potential. And so once I shifted, I lost all element of what I was supposed to do and just did what I knew I, I am meant to do. And I strike, I quit my job. So I went down in visa status. And then in America, it's either school, work, or love. If we need to stay legally, marriage, school, or that. So I said I'm just gonna to go to school. So I came down in my visa status, got my MBA then in 2014 about a year and a half after that i launched my podcast that was when that was when it started to to fit it was a gradual journey because i I just knew i was launching a podcast and i felt at at ease with that that led to speaking led to consulting Mm. my blog was also out there in in that moment and i I still write and people started to really like my ideas then i think it was after the trump election that things happened in, in in a sense where it wasn't more sporadic anymore. People were like, right. hey, this guy's been writing about this for for years now. Let's, let's have that. And it was more intentional, but it was a long gradual process yeah. in 2012 to, to get there. But yeah.
1: <laughs> That's incredible. And it is, I mean, the journey for all of us is this long meandering journey. I know it has been for me, but that turning point of that specific date, right? When you knew, no, like my life has to mean something. I don't want to die with regret. I'm sure that stays with you all day. Yeah. 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 That shift though, in 2016, so you've been doing this work all this time, but 2016 comes, which is a very activating year for many of us, myself included. What have you been grateful for in your journey since then? And what do you wish you didn't have to deal with and I don't mean white supremacy or any of these isms because we don't want to deal with it, but just what are the sort of the parts of it that are hard that no one talks about or that you think should be talked about more?
0: I think it's the sometimes it's the the loneliness. I'm used to being alone. I've I've always been alone in sensitive side. I went to boarding school I grew up in five courts four continents. My I haven't been able to see my parents because of visa restrictions for almost four years now. Wow. But we we stay close, we find a way to stay close. But there's a certain loneliness that comes with uh, you having a vision that many people are not willing to jump on board with yet. And that loneliness is going to mean you doing your own research sometimes. You being, in addition to a practitioner, a a researcher, but also someone that has to wind yourself explaining certain things and and, and pitching yourself. And I remember even the journey to, to getting this book it wasn't that people believed in my idea. People were like, we have all these books before. And I had to tell them that, well, you don't have a book from a millennial black. Right. And I growing up here, but it took me a year to get the book. And then when, they, when the book started to do well, I was like, oh, yeah. hey. Oh, hi. of we course, right. <laughs> so it's those moments where, you know, you're going to have to do a lot of, to prove yourself. They're not always the fun parts. The things that I'm grateful for are, you start to really think about your parents and how you were raised and, and just the, the privilege of my dad being a diplomat. And I don't take that privilege for granted. I, as marginalized as I've been in, in multiple parts, I, I it's possible to be marginalized and privileged those things or not. Yes. You, they can go hand in hand. And that privilege is something I'm always grateful for because if I didn't have those lived experiences, I'm pretty sure I would have had a very closed minded view about many things. And, mm. and it always it's something I don't take for granted at all because I think it fuels a lot of my work, and I've also learned to appreciate my hyper hyperactivity in my myself because those things used to be punished as a kid. I was always
1: yeah,
0: kid bouncing off the walls, <laughs> and I mean I, I always did well in school, but you know I was like you know, arts weren't promoted. right? just science and and math and and all those things, and I, I did reasonably well in those things, but I tried to. My true self is is an artist, and so. I was always grateful that I never really let those voices suppress those parts of me, because I feel like ironically, those things that people used to suppress me for are are what I use to tell stories now. Yeah.
1: yeah. And I, I'm very grateful for the privilege of of working for myself because it is how I can fully express myself. Right. where, we're very similar in some ways, but we're very different in personality. Yeah. You are you are full of energy. I am the opposite, right? So what I love about my work is I can go in the library and read many, many books and be by myself, right? Yes. I can have one-on-one conversations as opposed to being in, in large groups but it comes back to this importance of like, use your difference to make a difference. Use who you are and not being someone else. I think if I tried to be like you, or you try to be like me, it would be a yeah, be disaster. Different. <laughs> it would be a disaster. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> That's the importance, right? So what I call the, I call the book use difference to make difference. This a difference is as much a personal celebration of self as it is a way for people to understand diversity, equity and inclusion, because people, have a weird relationship with anything that's different. Yeah. If you look at the cause of any conflict in the world, it's been because of some level of difference, ideas, religion, gender, whatever. And the better we are at changing our relationship within ourselves as and as others, the better we'll be,
1: you know, and more yeah. comfortable
0: we'll be with being who we truly are, so, yeah.
1: Some of the concepts that are sort of towards the end of the book are these bigger questions or these bigger concepts that we know from past good ancestors like Nelson Mandela have been so integral to change and movement forward, but that we struggle with because we're in our anger and we're in our pain. Things like forgiveness, things like grace and compassion, things like not canceling each other. (laughs) How have you found having that conversation? And how do you, you know, how do we honor, like, I don't have to forgive you, right? But at the same time, forgiveness is this bigger altruistic action that can help change things?
0: Honestly, this year has been tough with that.
1: Mm-hmm. I'm sure. <laughs> I'm just going uh-huh.
0: to be be honest. But, you know, for me, the great Nelson Mandela quote about forgiveness, you know, being a prison sometime, if you hold on to that, is something that I, I've learned with conflict resolution. The way that I approach it is we don't have to, See eye to eye, or be friends, or any of these things, but you need to understand this concept and how this this matters to me. And I have gotten so firm about my boundaries and and reclaiming my time that
1: yes,
0: <laughs> to me it's. I, I always joke and say it was not even a joke. It's like Trump and Kanye on my, my my boundaries. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. And I'm more work in that middle area where I know people are influenced, like you know, kids or people that we influenced or you know, or teachers or students or whatever, the influence that have because those people sometimes, because of the way we have in our world, and haven't really reflected on their thoughts. And they're just isn't influenced by these folks. which is why I'm actually the angriest with those those two people on the boundaries, because they don't realize the power that they have. People are just spewing out those things without knowing how harmful they are. So I reconciled it that way. And I've learned how to examine what I need to forgive. If I find out that the, the anger I have is more self-serving uh, as opposed to actual issue related i've tried to be humble enough to let that go and just say okay i don't need to hold a grudge here it's fine it's been 10 years i don't know i'm not talking to this person but it doesn't matter just let it go leave it alone yeah i just have to have all those honest discussions with myself because I can be a grudge holder. I'm not even going to pretend.
1: <laughs> right, right. And just in the larger context, like even beyond the personal, in the larger context, there's many reasons to hold a grudge or maybe not hold a grudge, but just to be suspicious of the other, right? Yeah. Be Be wary, be self-protective because of what history has shown us and what mm. present times are showing us. I've been saying a lot, like, you know, when people ask, do you have hope that things are gonna change? And I've been saying a lot in the context of Black Lives Matter, it's really up to people who have white privilege to give us reasons to be hopeful. We're here, Mm -hmm. we've been here, we stay in the work, we're inspired from our ancestors, we're inspired from our purpose to continue the work, but we can't just keep carrying it. We can't just be Mm -hmm. the only ones who are doing it.
0: Yeah. And I'm glad you're that direct because I'm learning to, to do that as well because i think after june many people started i think your book made bestseller again right that month around that yes was, there was a circulation of black for yeah so everybody started i know this black person i know that black person right. but i, and I remember I, and know i've still been getting all those emails what i realized then was like this is one of the first times i've ever had leverage and i was like if anyone's going to ask me these things, i'm not sugarcoating and nothing, right. <laughs> I was going to say to say exactly what you were saying. I was like, all right, if you really want to know how to solve a problem, that you need to start reflecting on these things and it has to happen. And this is the burden you have to start
1: carrying as well.
0: And so, right.
1: yeah, that, that's what I'm going to Right. I mean, I'm so glad you said that about, you know, I'm not sugarcoating, right? Not that you would sugarcoat before, but really this is even more now of a, a reason why I will not. But there is this expectation oftentimes, like present this in in a way to us that makes us comfortable, present this in a way to us that makes it palatable. You're talking about in your book, like how to counter uh, oppression in the workplace in schools, right? And uh, what was the third one? I think in- um, Yeah,
0: it was media and it was a bunch of- uh, Media,
1: ones. media, yeah. right. I was gonna say entertainment, but it was
0: media. And it's,
1: yeah, media, entertainment, all those, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah and fun. you go quite into depth about what are some of the issues there. So for example, one of the things that you talk about in the workplace is the issues when it comes to recruitment. Right. Mm-hmm. And the, the inherent biases are that, who's doing the recruitment? What are the standards by which you're doing it? Like we need to actually pick apart and look at this. And so we can't yeah. tell you to do something that needs to be done, but do it in a way that's not going to upset you.
0: Absolutely. And with recruitment, you know, because I spend a lot, that's probably what I spend the most of my time doing with, with my consultancy. It's when I ask people reflecting their biases, I know people would think of people as intelligent or dumb based on where they go to school at, you know, like, did you go to an League? Mm-hmm. And I'm like, OK, let me, let wow. me ask you, yeah. do you need an Ivy League for this particular position or not? And then you see that uncomfortable realization, like, oh, no, but it'd be nice to. And I'm like, wait, why? Tell me why it's going to be nice to have right. them for there. And then having people walk there and, and then it was, like, oh, I didn't even think of it that way. Or when it comes to some sometimes some people, people with, that are dyslexic and, and they spell things differently and people are like, well, this person doesn't know how to spell. He's not intelligent. And I'm like, what? Don't even, you haven't even gotten the person into the room to even know what ideas they have. Maybe his job is even writing, really. What do we Right. Doing? right. How are we we <laughs> it? and it happens all over. And it's just all these simple things that we don't even think about. And many people are too focused on being just good people. And I always say, you can be a good person participating in a bad system, which is what we have a lot of. Mm. That's why, I, I good. yeah. Yeah. And it's all of these,
1: right? I mean, in this context of recruitment, all of these hidden ways that systemic oppression is there, it's maintained by people who are often even unknowing of how they are maintaining it. It's not just a racial slur or a slur or a you know an, an action that we can all say, okay, that was harmful. It's baked into the system. So we've talked about, in this conversation, we talked about education, the importance of teaching, you know, pre-colonial history and just knowing your history. We've talked about the workplace. When it comes to the media, you've talked in your book about the responsibility that journalists have. Yes. And how they can approach how they tell stories. If there are any journalists listening to this conversation right now, what do you want them to know about the power that they have right now and the responsibility that they have.
0: So I'll use NSARS, right? So there've been a lot of misinformation, disinformation, which plays a role in perpetuating things. And I said that in the book, but it's important for journalists to know how to build relationships with with the communities that they report (laughs) about. That is the number one thing I want any journalist to to understand, not even just for sources, but also for perspectives. You know, even if, if you're a journalist, Apparently yes, you have lenses, and in America we have a you know we have a liberal lens on CNN and or MSNBC and a you know conservative lens on Fox. There has to be some level of painting and presenting multiple sides, and and that comes from having true relationships with, with folks and being able to ask open-ended questions. And for opinion pieces, yes, you can include your opinion, but I really want. Journalists to start talking more about different perspectives so that other people can start coming to their own conclusions, because I think it's very dangerous when people jump into these conclusions about uh, certain countries or certain identities without actually having context or backgrounds, because people have different starting points to that. Not everybody's going to be as well-versed as you are or as you assume you're to be. It's so dangerous because I can't tell you how many times people are always surprised that I'm Nigerian. I cannot tell you, you know, people would, they have all their Prince jokes.
1: Is it because of your accent or is it because they have an idea of what a Nigerian person is?
0: Accent phase. Apparently like you look different. You should be blacker or your your accent sounds this, or you are very articulate.
1: Oh, that old gem.
0: Or you, you, you're not wow. a territorial, you're a feminist. You're like, I don't know. People say like, oh yeah, yeah, wow. all the Nigerians are no oh, this. I'm like, <laughs> it's it's it a number of things. Right. And so I I just think those things play a role into that. But it's yeah, citizen journalism just really established those relationships. Um,
1: yeah, you and you really making it clear the importance of really getting clear on your biases so that you can understand what stereotypes you might have in your mind about people, because that will influence how you tell the story, the stereotype that you have of Nigerian people, the stereotype that you have of black Americans, the stereotype you have about LGBTQ people, like whatever the stereotypes are, that's how you're going to tell the story.
0: Absolutely.
1: And this goes outside of, being a journalist, right? We all now have our mini platforms, our social media pages.
0: That's so true. <laughs> right? <laughs> yes, that's so yes.
1: true. Yes, yeah. yeah. And we are constantly telling stories. And so how are we telling those stories? How are we presenting them?
0: You know, it's funny that you brought that up because it's so true. That's also what's affected the journalism industry, this speed. Yeah information because many of us now are, I guess, quote unquote, I know journalists wouldn't want to hear that. I guess reporters sort of, but we we have platforms. Citizen, yeah.
1: We're citizen reporters. Right? <laughs> <City> reporters. <laughs>
0: and we have platforms that we're now considered like sources, even though, again, that speaks more to our culture where we, we are not as, not many of us as research focused as maybe say you and I would love to go to the library and read. Right. Because it's not, you know, we have many things uh, that provide information for now. So why would we, in our head, think of that? So there is that idea to be first because we might lose our jobs or it might, you know, a platform and all that. But I do feel like there's a balance. I don't want the integrity of the news or the report to be sacrificed.
1: Yes, 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 of course. But that, that point about speed is really important to note as well. And I'm thinking about how the speed at which news spreads now because of social media, and if something was wrong in the story, (laughs) it then creates these ripple effects, which can be harmful, or people don't know why they're sharing it, or people don't know if that was the correct thing to share. Uh Yeah, so what do you think is important when someone is considering, this is a, a crisis that's happening or a situation that's happening and people are asking, Let's amplify this. What should people be doing before they just go ahead and repost?
0: In a book, I stress the importance of being our own fact checkers, right? I think that's the habit that we need to start training ourselves to do more and more. There are many stats that show people sharing stuff based on headline, you know, because it confirms their beliefs. And we need to do the same thing we used to do. We used to, in, our, in school, you show your work, right, for math right. or cite your sources for papers. (laughs) That is the same sort of thing. You need to be able to at least come up in your head with three sources or this reasons why you believe this is that. Look up the quotes. If you see quotes, hey, who is this person that said it? Where's the site from? That's the stuff we need to do. I know it's gonna sound like extra work to people, but that's when this is gonna change, when we start training our kids and ourselves to do that because if it goes on Twitter, goes on Facebook and on Instagram, it's like, oh, bitch, that's it. Yep, look. (laughs) Right.
1: Well, it's like the the black squares that were shared earlier this year and asked people why they were sharing it and they they didn't know why. Black Lives Matter, you know, just sharing it, showing solidarity. Have no idea what this is actually about, though.
0: Yeah. That is the question. So you said it. Maybe people should ask themselves, hey, why am I sharing this? And what am I actually sharing? Mm Mm-hmm. I think that that moment can pause, cause people to pause for a little bit and think about that.
1: So, mm-hmm. yeah. there was a story that you shared in the book, and I was thinking, <laughs> I was thinking about it today because I was wearing my Lion King T-shirt. And I don't know if you oh. know the. <laughs> I know the story. I you know, know the-, the story that I'm. <laughs> do you want to tell the story? Yes. <laughs> oh. I laughed to myself. I was so like, I, cannot- I, I was like, I cannot do the interview in my Lion King T-shirt because that's it's too on the nose. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs>
0: so okay, so when I first came to-, to America, I was I was 17, and I remember the biggest arguments, which is funny. We were just talking about this, were with my professors, classmates, and roommates. And it was about whether I was Nigerian or African, it's the same thing, like, no, you're not like, your English is too good, you're, you're blacker. Do you talk like, and I was like, no. So I would have to say, no. Do you have gyms? Yes. Do you have houses? Yes. Do you all live in huts? No. And then when they will bring up that that clicking sound, I'd be like, yeah, well, you're talking about the, the tribe in South Africa, but that's not, you know, I'm, I'm from West Africa. And then some kid out of nowhere, he just like carrying this imaginary baby. And we were all looking, at, at him, like, what's happening? And he, he goes, Nantagonia, back to you, Baba. <laughs> and then I was like, Lion King's based in East Africa. I'm from West Africa. Right. What about Nigerians in West Africa? Don't you understand? But right. it, was, it was on and on. And then I was like, I'm, I'm not, I can't be the only Nigerian you ever met. I mean, it was back and forth like that. I didn't even just think about them. I thought about the people that were in their sphere of influence. Their brothers and their sisters, and you know how you know they can just be influenced by what's happening. And then, if someone goes and it says, Oh, yeah, you know, I met this guy that sleeps with monkeys, and he's just like just like the Lion King, and he's in my school, and he's from Nigeria, a kid goes to his own group of friends and they start saying that. And then that kid grows up to be someone that can hire someone and sees a Nigerian, and be like,
1: "Huh, No,
0: I don't want this person in my company. That's how that
1: when I read it, I first I laughed not because what they had done was funny. It was just imagining, how do you even process this as it's happening in the moment? And I was also thinking about my mom because she told me when they moved from East Africa to Wales, right? In the seventies, I mean, they would get very similar comments and people would ask them, do you live with animals? Like, do you live with lions and monkeys?" And, do you have houses or do you live in huts? And and my mom coming, like they lived in a big house. Like she couldn't understand why they would think that of her. And they couldn't understand why she wasn't saying, yes, that's how it is in Africa, yeah. right? And my kids have not yet been to Africa. This was the year that we were supposed to go to Africa. I haven't been since I was a kid. My parents go multiple times a year. My husband has been almost once a year, his mom still lives there. I hadn't been back and I was waiting for the kids to be old enough and then for us to to all go together and then COVID hit and we couldn't go. But we really talk to them about, you know, we really make it clear like this is what your culture is, this is who you are, this is a part of your culture so that they don't get those stories indoctrinated in their minds as well. And what really strikes me about it is that, you know, on the map, like not the map that is the normal map, but the map of how the world actually is, Africa is huge. There are so many other countries that fit inside of Africa with plenty of space to spare.
0: Right. (laughs) Second Second largest continent in the world. So
1: yeah, right. So when you're saying that South Africa, I'm from West Africa, I don't think people realize how far away those places are from each other, and how completely different those cultures are, and that the only (laughs) thing that you have in common is that you have melanated skin, and that's it.
0: Yeah, and you know the funny thing I always tell people is like you can have so many different versions of melanin in Africa, and even white folks in Africa, and arabic folk and, and you're like you're thinking of me as the whole representation of
1: me. right our family is arab african there's yes, you know there's but. all different kinds of of african but when the stereotyped idea of what an african is we know what the stereotypes are but that it it drives home this idea that the african continent and african people are down here right that comment that 45 made about shithole countries.
0: Uh. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, yes, I remember. Yeah.
1: I guess what I'm trying to ask is like, even though we have this very connected and globalized world, still there is this othering. There is this far distancing othering beyond going to Africa. (laughs) How do people really build their understanding so that they're not reverting to stereotyped understandings
0: Well, on the education portion of the book, I said after education itself is education of environment. And so it's collecting and gathering information, actively listening and being an active part of the community. And I was using my dad's background as a diplomat to tell the story. That was the lens. And I said, finding your inner inner Sherlock. But we need to start having that habit of collecting and gathering information. I think many people think that education stops within the four walls of a school system or a school Mm -hmm. Need to understand that this is an active learning. I, I can't express to people enough the things that I, I had to learn more about the LGBTQIA community, at, first of all, outside of school, because when I first came to Mary, I went to a very, very conservative university called Liberty University. I don't know if anybody knows that's it's, it's the largest Christian university. And so they had different ideas. And it was, I had to be intentional. I was like, God, oh, I need to learn about a community that, I've, that I was not familiar with, right? And that's an example. And so if you're thinking about othering, when you find yourself othering something, maybe it's through the news or you saying things that are not nice about a group of people, I would encourage you to then pause, reflect on why you hold that view and then do more research in that because that's the first step because Mm. many people have a lot of those views whether they come out with it (laughs) in public or not. And so starting with that, and that there are books, there are ways to expose yourself to different worldviews. And then there are, there are ways for you to invite a form of listening, podcast, mm. when we could travel, go to different events and those type of things. So, yeah, just really reflecting your lived experiences and exposure. And then you find that your worldview can expand.
1: And would you say it's really important not to, or to learn how to also, as you're listening and being there and being present, to also learn how to de center yourself as oh, well?
0: Yeah. Yeah. You need to ask open-ended questions as opposed mm-hmm. to leading questions. So you, you can't do the, yeah, but you really sleep with monkeys, right? No, you be like, what was it like for you growing up? What was your relationship with this team? How did you and your mother, you know, have fun in this? You know, when you start doing that, the reason why it's important to ask open-ended questions is you start to get glimpses of, important things to them you know sometimes they might say oh yeah i loved spending time with my family this way especially around october 1st because it was november because it was our independence day then you have oh that's independence day and then on our independence day we used to go uh, parades and go to grandparents and we add this river oh you got this geography there the river and then you know this is important for families you start getting all these pieces of information as opposed to you trying to you know, oh, but I went to Kenya one time or I did this one time. Is it true <laughs> that this happened? And then you're like, you're missing out. They can't tell you something because you it's like you're trying to match them <laughs> and
1: say, I'm, right. I'm this person too, <laughs> yeah. And that sense of curiosity is really, really important. And I think anytime that you belong to a dominant group, right, you have to be really aware that you do belong to that dominant group, yes. right? Yes. And be aware that the way that you're seeing things is going to be through that dominant lens Mm. and try and consciously take it off and be like, what if I just don't know anything about anything and just listen? Yeah. Yeah. So Ty, as we sort of draw to an end with this conversation, one of the things that I've been personally thinking about, and I think because we're coming to the end of this year. And so anyway, as we come to the end of any year, you start thinking about next year. You start thinking about what is my focus going to be? Where am I directing my energies? How do I want to show up? We're in pull of this together, building connection, using your difference to make a difference, being a global citizen, a global leader, while honoring your anger and all of those really valid emotions. Like, what are you tapping into for yourself that you're seeing yourself focusing on or directing your energy to over the next? year plus as a way to continue to use your difference to make a difference?
0: That's such a great question. Cause I feel like I'm always in that reflective mode,
1: mm-hmm. but
0: to that point, my whole thing is dismantling systems of oppression and building the next set of global leaders. And so for me, I feel like I've been building good momentum on the workplace front, especially with my consultancy. What I've been focusing on a lot is on education. So that's the thing, and it's on retelling history. <laughs> the right way you should be, and also trying to get into the field. which is why I became a professor this year and see what I can learn from the systems so that I can, I can learn how to potentially help in fixing it. So I've, I've been focusing on storytelling in an educational format that invites more dialogue. That's been a big focus for me. And I'm sure it's going to be more in the next year or so.
1: Well, congratulations on becoming a professor this year. That's amazing. Thank you. That is incredible. I
0: appreciate that.
1: As a professor with a professor platform and this vision that you have, you know, what is your dream in five years from now that you can look back and say, this is what has happened as a result of the work that I've put in and the work that I'm doing with other people? Now we see this. What is that thing?
0: I'd love to be an expanded study on African and Black history like a whole wing of it where, where it's, it spurs multiple textbooks and and different interpretations of that. Because now when I think about the, the history, it's almost separate from history itself. It's like a, a boutique type mm. of thing. But it doesn't get the, the respect that I feel like it deserves. And my hope is that out of that, I'm able to tell and produce more stories. I want to write and showrun, run, be my own Shonda Rhimes, for example, if you will, <laughs> or, you know, Ryan I Coogler. see that. <laughs> yeah, Ryan Coogler, DuVernay, all these things. I want to like have this platform that spurns all these types of things, stories from literature to fiction, nonfiction, and, and promotes those things that it becomes such a normal uh, celebration of heritage uh, and pride, so that is, the hope in in five years. And then I want to have on top.
1: Yes! I would tune into that. I would tune into that. Yeah. For our listeners who are asking themselves that same question around, how am I going to be directing my energies? this this has been a tough year. It's been a really, really hard year. And it's a time when people can either sink into despair or they can rise up to meet the times that we're in. Right. And so what are your words of advice for people who are looking for, how do I rise up?
0: 10 years ago, I was reeling from having 85 plus job rejections in college. And now I'm fortunate enough to be able to have a book out and and be able to tell the stories that I was getting rejected for. And, And I say this to say that we overestimate what we can achieve in one year and underestimate what we can achieve in 10 years. So if you're looking and searching for hope, one of the best ways to do that is to have a plan for that next best step and with the bigger picture in mind. So what is it that you feel like you want to do? And what is an area of growth that you feel like you can work on in service of being that person? And the more committed you are to doing that, the more in line you're going to find yourself with with that mission. Because there's no way I could have predicted the Trump election or COVID or any of these things. And as horrific as those things have been, ironically, I feel like God has put me in a position to be a voice in those things because of the tough times that I had to get to be in that position. So honor your skills, develop your skills, stay committed to those those things and stay vigilant. And if you have aspirations of the social justice field, I would encourage you to continuously read from different thought leaders in the field, embed yourself in the work of the people that you admire and find ways you can add your own frameworks to that because you're going to be received differently than even the people you admire. But yeah, that would be what I would tell people to be focusing on for now.
1: That's amazing. Thank you. Thank you. Tayo, before my very final question, I just want to take a moment to honor you and to thank you for your presence in the world. You're just this beam of energy. (laughs) You you described it as I have a boisterous personality, but I just see it as just pure joy bouncing off of the walls and it's really infectious.
0: (laughs) Thank you.
1: So it's been a real pleasure to to be in conversation with you. And I also really appreciate the depth that you do your work with. And I know that you connect with so many people across so many spheres. I got to watch some of your TED talks. I've gotten to watch your talk at the UN. I know that you speak with the youth. Yeah. I know that you speak with companies, you have this great way of connecting with people and you're a great testament to this idea that if you just really be yourself, learn who you are, get clear in who you are and show up in that way unapologetically in all spheres, it has a ripple effect on everyone. So I just wanna reflect that back to you and acknowledge you and thank you.
0: Thank you Leila, thank you, really appreciate that.
1: All right, our final, final question. What does it mean to you to be a good ancestor?
0: Well, in order for me to be a good ancestor, I have to honor myself and my values. And the way I do that is by adding value to the world. The way that Nelson Mandela was someone that added value to the idea of racial equality and education, I feel like being a good ancestor so on my end would be bridging the divides that currently exist and dismantling systems of oppression in education, media, and workplace. So those three things are, are, are ways that I feel like I can be a good ancestor. Yeah. Because I feel like the people coming after me will be in those fields, so, yeah.
1: Incredible, and you're doing it, you're doing it. Ah,
0: <laughs> thank you, I hope so, I hope so. <laughs> I hope so. Thank so you,
1: Taya, thank you. This is Leila Saad, and you've been listening to Good Ancestor Podcast. I hope this episode has helped you find deeper answers on what being a good ancestor means to you. We'd love to have you join the Good Ancestor Podcast family over on Patreon, where subscribers get early access to new episodes, patron-only content and discussions, and special bonuses. Join us now at patreon.com forward slash Good Ancestor Podcast. Thank you for listening, and thank you for being a good ancestor.